Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is in London today, and I'm on my way back to San Francisco. Uh, Now, what I quickly have to say is a special thank you uh, to one of our panellists who wrote me a letter of support for my application. So thank you, Amanda. Oh, no problem. No problem. Um, Truth be known, listener, is that actually I came back to England in May and went... Uh, to reapply for a visa and was actually uh, turned down and uh, many friends and professional colleagues which Amanda is definitely one of those um, wrote me letters of support and I was rewarded with a 10-year visa so again thank you uh, for your letter of support Amanda now you didn't uh, ask so- me I've got sway in the US immigration authorities I know people <laughs> well, the thing is right I'm trying to get into America she's American it's unfair but it's true Uh, you know Johnny it would have been kind of irrelevant for me to to bring you up (laughs) racism is what's going on no 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 John John it's called logic and practicalities that's what it's called John but anyway so we are joined today but you've heard him the happy curmudgeon that is the new statesman's John Elledge and of course the wonderful, lovely, shiny political editor of Salon, Amanda Marcotte in Brooklyn. Say hello, people. Hello. Hello. In a week, they've seen Theresa May strike trade deals with Malawi to replace our membership of the EU. We ask, was John McCain the saint the press would have us believe? U.S. President Donald Trump spoke out for the first time about John McCain on Monday, verbally acknowledging the veteran U.S. Senator's death days later. Our hearts and prayers... uh are going to the family of Senator John McCain. There will be a lot of activity over the next number of days, and uh, we uh, very much appreciate everything that 
Senator McCain has done for our countries. That was after a day Trump spent ignoring questions over why he appeared unwilling to bid McCain a graceful goodbye. First, at an event announcing a potential trade deal with Mexico. Mr. President, any thoughts on John McCain, sir? Then, when he welcomed the visiting president of Kenya. Mr. President, do you have any thoughts on John McCain? And later, after a cabinet meeting, Trump just ignored the questions. McCain served six terms in the Senate and endured torture as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. He died on Saturday night, but he was also a harsh and regular critic of Trump, who had only written a tweet on Saturday night offering condolences to the McCain family without a word of praise. And while the White House dipped its flag to half-staff Sunday night, the Stars and Stripes flew again at full staff Monday morning before they dipped again. It was a confusing break from protocol. Typically, the president's residence keeps flags lowered until the honoree is buried. Finally, Trump seemed to relent to pressure from veterans and members of Congress, saying in a statement later he respected McCain's service to the nation and had ordered flags flown at half-staff. Amanda, uh, John McCain voted with the Republicans 87% of the time, but was beloved by independents and by even some Democrats. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, I think the part that's fair is that he he did like actually occasionally have this attitude of being critical of other Republicans, being clearly uneasy with the sort of drift towards racist populism and fascism in the Republican Party, that sort of thing. Um, but most of it really, I think, was just because he was very good at manipulating the press. And, you know, a lot of people talk about this in, in nothing but negative terms. You know, uh, McCain was well known um, for the D.C. media corps for being willing to stop and talk to reporters a lot more than most senators, like most of the time. And a lot of people, when pointing out that he was manipulating the press, are disdainful of this. But I, I have to say, as someone who, who actually has to do reporting sometimes, I, I can't be totally hard on him for actually being accessible. I, I think that was a good thing. I just really wish that it didn't so distort people's understanding of his record and who he was as a person. In the 2000 election, he had his straight talk express. How much of a straight talker was he really compared to your average Republican politician? I would say not that much. I mean, I know that he said, for instance, that he regretted voting for the Iraq war, but I've never seen any indication that he understood why that was a bad idea. And he was hawkish until the end. So it's, it's very frustrating to me because I don't think he ever, you know, he would get a lot of blowback. Once he became aware that an opinion was untenable and that it was obviously wrong and that there was no, hiding from it. Sometimes he would back down a little bit, but I don't think I ever got any sense that he actually understood why so many of the things he stood for were wrong. John, do we ever fate and eulogize politicians the way that Americans can do when one of their own dies in office? Because I can't really think of one, you know, Tony Blair, but he, not Tony Blair, Tony Ben, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Tony Benn didn't get, you know, this kind of semi-state funeral or, or whatever. Thatcher, yes, and Churchill, but that's just about it. Yeah, it's reserved for those really big figures. And also it is kind of controversial when that happens. I mean, Margaret Thatcher did get a state funeral. 
but also that was kind of weird. I mean, like I rem- I remember quite clearly the MP Peter Lilly, who'd been a minister in her government, uh, laying into the BBC for saying she'd been a controversial figure, which was just a statement of fact. Like, I I think something in which there is a definite parallel with McCain was uh, John Smith, the leader of the Labour Party between 1992 and 1994 when he sadly died of a heart attack at, I think he was about 58 or 59, he was quite young. He was kind of seen in retrospect as this kind of, you know, the greatest Labour Prime Minister we never had. Uh, in fact, I think there was even a, a documentary of that precise name. And I think it's, there is something around People who don't quite make it, you know, the, the, the path not taken, we do kind of slightly fetishize what we didn't get. In the same way, look, he's, he's, he's not dead. He's very much alive and working in New York with refugees. Uh, but David Miliband, who, lost, who didn't win the Labour leadership uh, and lost out to his brother in 2015, is still kind of talked up as this as this kind of you know great lost labor leader despite the fact he's completely and utterly rubbish and i really think it's just that you know there's this a human impulse to kind of like imagine that the grass is greener in some alternate reality um just also very quickly i find it interesting what amanda says about the accessibility of John McCain, because I think this is this is also something that I see definite parallels of certain stuff that's happened in, in British politics. Like one of the reasons that the UKIP got so much press coverage over the last five or six years, in, including in times when they really weren't doing very well in the polls, was because they kind of had a policy of just like when the journalists rang them asking them for anything, they would say yes. So you could always get a talking head. And this is kind of like a sort of dirty little secret of like how much accessibility of that sort can affect coverage. Just because, you know, if you're trying to fill space, knowing that someone is is a guaranteed quote is, is actually very useful. After you, Amanda. I was just going to say, though, I think, you know, the lesson for that is to stop scolding the media so much. Now, again, I'm a self-interested person on this. But, you know, for (laughs) politicians to think strategically about how to get their message out and return journalist phone calls is is the first line of defense. And and another thing, John, I I can't slightly disagree with you about Miliband. He's, you know, been completely rubbish. He's got great hair. And being as, you know, a man as I am without hair, I'm kind of (laughs) have hair envy. I mean, as a man with with some pretty fine hair myself, I obviously respect that in a politician. Uh, but I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really think that's enough. It's really all I'm saying here. And also, <laughs> like like the late John McCain, David Miliband was a little bit on the sort of you know warry side. So. Mm. All right, that he was, that he was. Now, Amanda, John McCain's final message was aimed at America and its president. Uh, for us Brits and for those people that weren't necessarily tuned into this uh, relationship built on animus, um, why did Trump have it in for John McCain? Oh, God, it's so sour, hard to know. I think because unlike Almost anyone else in the Republican coalition, McCain would not just give him whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. He actually stood up to him a few times. He called him out. He uh, he was very aggressive on the Russia issue. He basically torpedoed the efforts of Trump and the Republicans to repeal our universal or our would-be universal health care program, Obamacare. Um you know, Donald Trump being a sociopathic narcissist, 
all he sees is people he can kind of conquer and bring to heel. And, and, you know, say what you will about John McCain. He was never brought to heel by Donald Trump, so Donald Trump hates him. And I would contrast this with uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who was John McCain's best friend in the Senate, and as far as I can tell, his best friend, period. And he has not only been brought to heel by Donald Trump, but he actually went out to the press and like tried to cover up and, and tell people to move on from Trump's repeated postmortem efforts to take digs at McCain to the point where you begin to wonder if, if Trump is like blackmailing Graham or something. But I, I think with McCain, there was just nothing that he ever, he never had any leverage over the man. Amanda, when Trump on the campaign trail, when he's running to be president, said that he liked his servicemen that weren't captured by the enemy, what was that in response to? I completely forgot about that until you actually spoke. Because it seems to me that Trump had it in for McCain from the very start. And I just think it's because basically McCain represents everything that Trump isn't. This is nothing to do with policy positions. This is everything to do with the fact that here's a man that served and Trump infamously didn't and has, has got a whole back history of public service, whether you agree or disagree with his various kind of policy positions. because And he's some kind of Republican sacred cow. It's just a case of... This man is all the things that I'm not. I think that's a lot to do with it. I don't remember what the specific incident was, but I, I know it was in response to McCain actually taking a public swipe at him. And I think that that was mm-hmm. a lot of what it is. I will point out that there are a lot of Democrats that fit that profile to lifetime of public service, served in the military, who are also very critical of of Trump. Um, Tammy Duckworth, Senator Tammy Duckworth, who like is an amputee because of her service in Iraq, um, makes fun of Trump for being a draft dodger all the time. She calls him cadet bone spurs. Uh, (laughs) But he doesn't seem to have the same attitude towards her in part because I think it doesn't get under his skin when women criticize him, when Democrats do in the same way, because there's no expectation that they're going to be brought to heel. You know, the fact that McCain just was always a little out of his grasp, I think, is is really what bugged him in the end. Uh, John, McCain represented the establishment internationalist, free trade, pro-immigration, at least uh, up until 2012, wing of the Republican Party, which is uh, struggling for air in the era of Trump. Where do you think the Republican Party goes after the passing of this very anti-Trumpian politician? Because he's collegiate and a man who had friends on both sides of the aisle. I think there is certainly a symbolism uh, you can read into the death of John McCain, because that was his reputation as someone who was kind of, you know, didn't always toe the party line. He was sort of a free thinker and so on. But, you know, at the same time, he did... I think I'm right in saying he did mostly toe the party line. He was yeah. still he still voted with Donald Trump. Like I think on the the five thirty eight podcast they were saying he was still voting with Donald Trump like eighty six, eighty seven percent of the time. That's pretty mm-hmm. Trumpian. 
and also his policies were still from certainly from a European perspective like very right wing and very hawkish like he was not I think there is a danger in kind of because he was quite personable and because like he did sometimes rebel against the leaders of his party uh, when they happened to be president and he, he didn't there is a danger in thinking of him as you know a centrist and that's clearly not true he was very clearly a long way to the right even in even in american terms i think yes. uh it's just he was a lot more he was a lot more personable about it he was kind of like he he didn't think the other side were sort of enemies of the state or something or he didn't try and use that argument against them he treated the democrats with a measure of respect while he was trying to undo everything they stood for so i just think we don't we, we don't really sort of cope well with nuance in this political environment anymore so it's like, i i feel like a lot of the both a lot of the sort of hagiography of, of him and a lot of the kind of uh, the, the sort of knee-jerk response to that where people have gone, well, actually, he, he supported uh, you know, these terrible wars or whatever. I, I think people are kind of misreading it in both in both cases. I think actually it's just he was a lot more complex than that. And he was sometimes very self-interested. He was sometimes very principled. Uh, and, you know, his, his record in Vietnam was genuinely astounding. But that didn't take away from the fact that later in his life, he sometimes did some quite unpleasant things. So... I I, that, that wasn't really an answer to your question. <laughs> I don't no, know where the Republican Party is going. I think just as you probably shouldn't ask the random British guy to sort of back your your, your US visa, I'm probably the wrong one for that question as well, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, here's one thing which he inflicted on people, which was absolutely wrong. It was Sarah Palin. Amanda, why does John McCain get such a pass for bringing this demagogue, this populist, onto the American stage? You know, if I'm honest, I would say, like, one of the things a lot of liberals are doing when they're sort of bending over backwards to praise McCain in his passing is that they're kind of trying to concern troll current Republicans, right? They're saying they're using him as a weapon against the sort of Trumpian Republican politics, saying, oh, you know, why can't more of you be like John McCain? He was a good man who respected his opponents and didn't call them terrorists or enemies of the state. And I think that, you know, acknowledging that Sarah Palin was actually the beginning in a lot of ways of what was the creation of this downhill slide into Donald Trump um, kind of messes with that narrative and so is being politely ignored. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. If, if it's effective to shame, use the corpse of John McCain to shame current Republicans, you know, don't let me get in anyone's way. I, I just find the whole narrative kind of dishonest. Amanda, let, let's kind of end up with you on this. The death of McCain has kind of exposed, like, not that we needed it to be writ large, but it's absolutely shown us that kind of bipartisanism and decorum has been stripped away from many elements of the American right. How can that be, shall we say, that, that the right can take pot shots at somebody like McCain, where they trumpet service, duty, patriotism and the flag? And this man represented all the ideals that an American should so you know, what does he say about this, you know, the, the search for the soul of the kind of the new Republican Party, this kind of Trumpian Republican Party in the death of McCain? And the fact, as I said, that um, many people on the right have said, ah, 
it wasn't all that. I mean, I think what we see here is that these sort of stances about duty and patriotism and the flag are empty shells that what they are are ways to truss up, you know, just blatant sexism, blatant racism, and try to pass it off as something more noble than it is. So that I think is, you know, really exemplified by Trump, which is this man who didn't serve, but like wraps himself in the flag and wraps himself in veterans concerns, isn't actually helping veterans. And in fact, has a long record of, of publicly attacking John McCain, of many gold star families, including uh, the Khan family, um, who spoke at the Democratic Convention about how their son died for freedom, and he, he just made fun of them. All sorts of things like that. I, I think what we have seen is that these kind of pretensions to patriotism on the right have have and probably are and probably always have been just a cover story for for baser desires. Mm. Right. Talk about base desires, base urges. Um, racism is definitely one of those. So now let's talk about racism in the higher echelons of British politics. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have... David Crowther of the History of England. It was the best of times. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. Little fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. Little fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill's sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But 
There's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views. And it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England as she is. The country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that is David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. Anti-Semitism is racism and we should all condemn racism in all its forms. I think that Lord, obviously Lord Sachs is, was a long-standing chief rabbi. He has raised significant concerns, but it's not only him. Members of the Labour Party have raised concerns as well. I think uh, the leader of the Labour Party needs to respond to those concerns. John, with Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn both being branded as racist this summer, how endemic? is racism in British politics. A lot, a lot more sodding endemic than we all hoped it was a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, I came to the conclusion that while, while every Western country certainly is racist, they're kind of all racist in their own unique ways. Uh, and I think the same has sadly turned out to be true of Britain's major political party. So on the right, we have Boris Johnson, our beloved former London mayor and former foreign secretary, who... Uh, forced to quit the government uh, because his friend did a few weeks ago and to make sure that nobody forgets he's there wrote a horrendous column in in the telegraph for which he's being paid a quarter of a million pounds a year by the way and the first one of those he basically talked about how women in burqas uh traditional islamic dress uh he compared them to to post boxes you know, he wasn't saying we should ban the burqa. He was kind of actually, he, he stopped before getting that far. But nonetheless, it was kind of sort of leaning very hard into these kind of hard right talking points, sort of stirring up racial tensions. And this happened very soon after he had a meeting with Steve Bannon, formerly of uh, the White House. At the same time, Britain has a prime minister in Theresa May, who formerly as Home Secretary was responsible for immigration policy and put in place all sorts of uh, uh, immigration policy so hostile that which literally ended up with, uh, with the government deporting people with British citizenship because they're a bit brown. This is all happening in the context of, of the Brexit, this telling uh, European citizens of whom there are three million in Britain that they're not really welcome anymore. So it would be lovely at this juncture if on the other side of the fence we had a Labour Party kind of committed to anti-racist policies. But unfortunately, it's led by Jeremy Corbyn, who has a history of standing a little bit too close to uh, people who with genuinely anti-Semitic views. And so instead of like holding the government to account on Brexit and everything else, the Labour Party is constantly fighting a rearguard action as to whether or not its leader is an anti-Semite. A lot of people in Britain's Jewish community are, are actually kind of 
scared of, of the idea of a Labour government now, which is not really great. Uh, so, so it's kind of a pox on both their houses, and I'm feeling very depressed. So anti-Semitism kind of is, is structurally different from, from other forms of racism in that it, it can take these forms where you're not just kind of like looking down on people and being prejudiced against them. You kind of also talk about sort of hidden influence. And, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of very anti-Semitic tropes are in use like they could like jeremy corbyn has said he doesn't have a problem with jewish people he does have a problem with zionists well the problem is like 90 percent of the british uh, jewish community support the existence of the state of israel like they will hear the word zionist and think it means that that doesn't mean they support the government of benjamin netanyahu it doesn't mean that they don't want there to be a two-state solution it just means that they think there should be a state of israel and that it is not inherently racist for it to to, to want to defend its jewish it's uh, the idea of it as a majority jewish state which which kind of makes sense given that you know this is only two generations on from a point where like most a large chunk of britain's jewish population population as with Jewish populations around the world will have literally lost family members in the Holocaust so of course like the state of Israel is very important to, to people including those um, who, who would really like this to be a Palestinian state including many people on the left so it almost doesn't matter whether whether Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite in his heart. He's certainly kind of like pursuing a line that many people will perceive that way and which a lot of his supporters in their attempt to kind of like back him are kind of lumbering into saying genuinely horrifying anti-Semitic things. Amanda, do we have the far right of America to thank for this new rise in dog whisper identity politics, which is hitting British shores? I think it's a two-way street. Um, and I think that you see a lot of people in the right wing, the far, the fringe right, and both the European and American side, these white nationalist people or adjacent to them or whatever taxonomy you want to create about these right wingers. People like Steve Bannon have reached across the pond and, and, and really tried to make an alliance with these racist right-wingers in England and other European countries. And there's a kind of an exchange because I think a lot of the Islamophobia you're seeing in the United States um, has really kind of been developed from, they, they sort of learned it from um, the way a lot of European Islamophobes speak about this. But I think also in, in the flip side, you're seeing a lot of the, the kind of rhetorical strategies that racists in this country have used for ever and ever and ever being adopted by the British right. Um, I think the real way to think about this is that we're seeing an international fascist alliance really kind of forming. And, and that is, I think, what we should be most worried about. John, Boris Johnson is a man who's built his career on playing the buffoon and poking fun at other people, women looking like letterboxes and describing black people as piccaninnies with watermelon smiles. Why is this man still lionised by sections of the Tory party? I mean, I think one reason is that the Tory party, everyone is kind of positioning themselves for the leadership contest, which is almost certain to happen within the next six months or so, because, you know, Brexit is going to go, even in the unlikely event, it goes, it goes well, um, at that point, this kind of the Tory party has no use for Theresa May anymore and will probably push her out 
because like her job was basically to handle the Brexit mess. And in reality, Brexit is not going to go well, uh, at which point they will want to stab her in the back because it will have been a disaster. So either way, there is almost certain to be a le- uh, vacancy at the top of the Tory party very soon. So, so they're jostling for position. And in the same way, I said that I don't necessarily think Jeremy Corbyn is personally prejudiced against Jewish people, but it doesn't really matter because of the policies, he's, uh, because of the, the kind of language he uses sometimes kind of sounds like he is. I think there's a similar thing with Boris Johnson and Steve Bannon. I don't think that Boris Johnson is... Uh, I think he would be horrified at the idea that he would be considered a fascist. I think he would probably have rump about, you know, how the British invented liberty and all that kind of bollocks. But I think he is willing to use him. Uh, Michael Gove is another one who, uh, Michael Gove is currently the Environment Secretary. He is reported to have uh, met Steve Bannon as well. I think all these guys are basically just kind of like, they're not averse to using this kind of bit of these people who have kind of made the far right respectable in some way. So we had Nigel Farage leading uh, the UK Independence Party, UKIP, um, but because he didn't look like a thug, because he was wearing a tweed suit and speaking, and he was an ex-banker and he kind of spoke in plummy tones, he could kind of like attract support in a way that the more thuggish British National Party before him had, had not been able to do. And I think there is a similar thing with that kind of like Breitbart element of, of the US right where it's almost like they've kind of laundered far-right policies and made them acceptable to, to people who would previously not have been willing to go there. So I think, I think that's why uh, senior people in the British Tory party are not horrified at the idea of talking to these guys because they're kind of, you know, Steve Bannon is, is the respectable face of fascism. Amanda, Boris Johnson's comments kind of normalise prejudice, don't they, through seeming jokes um, this is definitely something which uh, Donald Trump is kind of expert in. If you say that Mexican immigrants are criminals and rapists and you conflate all immigrants with MS-13 all the time, it becomes less shocking over time, doesn't it? Yeah, and certainly insofar as focusing especially on criminality, I think um, is is a really, like, unfortunately a gift from the United States to to you guys. <laughs> Um, that goes way, way back in this country's history, you know, back to the post-Civil War days and the Reconstruction when white supremacists um, basically created a narrative around, you know, newly freed people that had been enslaved before saying that they were criminals, that they were preying on white women. And that playbook is is still being used in the United States. And I think that it is unfortunately very effective as a a a fascist playbook because it, it goes past people's defenses right to the, to the like primitive lizard part of their brain where everything's about fear. And for that, I, I, I am just extremely sorry that this is going on and I wish I could fix it. So listener, this program was recorded on Wednesday of this week, just before I uh, jumped on a big silver bird and flew back to the Bay area. Now uh, recording it, where and whence I did, um, my Wi-Fi was somewhat dodgy, to put it mildly. Which means that um, this show ends with just a conversation between John and Amanda. Because, um, quite simply, I wasn't there. So, at the end of this show, there is no takeaways of the week. 
but here is um, John and Amanda's cosy chat when I disappeared from Wi-Fi. He's gone again. Of course, he bloody has. <laughs> I, I'm. Oh, that's fine. He can edit that out. I, I imagine he's going to pop back in and say, "Right, let's kill it there." But should we wait for that to happen? Yeah, I think that that's probably right. <laughs> Did, do you ever find yourself wondering if this is like genuinely is this what it felt like in the thirties? Right. Do you think that's where we are? Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially on, you know, in America, there was kind of a very similar. I think it. I think in the United States, and even this has been somewhat of a hidden history here. So I don't know how much this is known over there, but there was a, a rise of fascism here at the same time that there was in Europe. The the KKK was on the rise in the United States in the 20s and 30s. Um, there was huge fascist rallies in the 30s. Actually, Donald Trump's uh, father got uh, arrested at a KKK rally here, a riot, actually, <laughs> a rally that turned into a riot here in, in the 1920s. So I, I do see that parallel. I mean, do you worry? Yeah, I mean, I, just, I mean, I think there's certainly... There's just a tweet I saw that I can't stop thinking about, about, you know, it's like the, 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 the story of the, the boiling of the frog, except there's two frogs and one of them's desperately trying to get out while the other one's clinging to its leg and saying, everything's going to be fine. And I do kind of think like, I swing wildly on whether I think that like people are being paranoid by talking up this, this period in history as, you know, we're really sinking into something dark or whether actually it's, it's sort of convincing yourself that you're being paranoid is how, is how it happens. But I think also, like, we have a similar thing to you guys where, like, it's sort of built into a national narrative that, you know, Britain did not fall prey to extremism. But, you know, there were still there were still fascists marching on the street. There were still, like, quite active uh, communist forces in Britain in the 1930s. It's just as it turned out, neither of them got anywhere near power. We, we don't really talk about sort of the imperial history and the fact we spent 200 years going around the world nicking other people's countries because the only bit of that we do talk about is you know the bit where britain was kind of like the only country standing against fascism it's not only not only is that kind of like given this idea that you know britain is untouchable by these extremist forces but it kind of has got us out of the historical guilt for the stuff that we did wrong in the centuries leading up to that yeah and after it too yeah yeah no i i mean i think that I go back and forth on that myself because I think sometimes having this national myth that you have historically as a country stood up for freedom can encourage people to be their better selves. But (laughs) lately I'm beginning to think it's just a cover story. (laughs) Yeah. For their worst selves. So, yeah, I think Roy Field's out. I think so. Yeah. He seems to be out for the count now. Maybe his Wi-Fi ran out. I hope you enjoyed uh, this week's Mid-Atlantic show. Next week, we will be joined by Tim Marshall, our foreign correspondent, where we will look at a couple of global issues. Uh, don't forget, you can uh, follow us on Twitter, where we are at Mid-Atlantic Show. The website is midatlanticshow.com. I can be found on social media, specifically Twitter, where I'm at Royfield. And you can email me, royfield at gmail.com. See you all next week for another rip-roaring mid-Atlantic. And don't forget, do the right thing. Bye-bye.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.